0: I think the more one gets into the habit of a hustle culture, as you put it, and that's required more often than not to make money, you become habituated so much to the hustle and lose a sense of self-possession. You lose touch with your friends and you lose touch with the outdoors, You know, just rushing around from meeting to meeting and you don't even take a moment to appreciate the sunrise or the sunset. And that's a real problem. We all know, as you said, money Buys us comforts, gives us leisure time in theory. And what's leisure time? But time to cultivate the most fundamental things.
1: Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick. Thank you for our returning listeners for tuning in again and a warm welcome to the new listeners i hope you enjoy this podcast where our mission is to uncover your unique money story and guide you towards a healthy thriving and flourishing relationship with money so you can live a rich and meaningful life before we get into today's show if you have been enjoying the podcast i would love it if you can head over to apple podcast and leave a review Those reviews definitely help bring on great guests like we have today. Today's episode is called Philosophy for Fulfilling Life Beyond the Pursuit of Happiness. We're joined by Adam Adato Sandal, who's a philosopher, a Guinness World Record holder in pull-ups, and an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. Adam argues that the key to happiness is not in goal-driven striving actions, but rather forging a life that integrates self-possession, friendship, and engagement with nature. We get into what that means specifically during this episode, as we dive into many learnings and wisdoms from his book, Happiness in Action, A Philosopher's Guide to Living a Good Life. Have you ever felt tired of the never-ending cycle of goal-orientated striving and the pursuit of happiness? Are you ready to live a fulfilling life that is not just defined by your accomplishments? In this episode, Adam shares his insight and wisdom on how philosophy can act as a guide to help us reflect on what it means to live a good life. He offers a surprising answer to the age-old question of happiness and explains how to find true happiness by immersing oneself in activity that is intrinsically rewarding. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Adam Adato-Sendel.
0: Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me.
1: I've been doing this podcast and really diving into the reason why many of us work is to live this good life, to experience happiness. I thought you would be a wonderful guest to come on the podcast to talk about your book, which I really enjoy the title, Happiness in Action, A Philosopher's Guide to the Good Life. I thought a really good place to start, which may seem simple, but I think it's complex, is really answering the question, what is happiness? For many of us, We aspire to feel, to be happy. We orientate many of our life decisions, where we work, why we work, around this notion to be happy. But I think for many of us, we have a hard time really explaining what it means to be happy. So I noticed with your book, it's not a step-by-step quick fix to be happy. (laughs) Rather, it claims that philosophy can be this guide. So Adam, what does happiness mean to you? And what role, if any at all, does philosophy play?
0: Happiness, as I understand it, is more than our typical conception of happiness as a kind of feeling or mental state, feeling good about yourself, content, pleasure, tranquility. That's part of happiness, but it's not happiness in the deepest sense. And what I try to bring out in my book, Happiness in Action, as the title suggests, is to connect happiness to activity. And my thesis is that happiness consists in being in the midst of activity that you embrace for its own sake, that's intrinsically worthwhile, activity that isn't for the sake of some further goal, some accomplishment but activity that you would do anyway, win or lose, success or failure. And I think what philosophy can do is help us to articulate that notion of happiness and also to investigate the virtues of character that are implied by that conception of happiness, of being in the midst of activity, being on a journey, you could say.
1: So this idea of being on a journey I noticed a lot in your book, you talk about the path or the end. And how have you observed that perhaps we might fail to realize that we think we're on like embracing the journey, the path, but perhaps we might be in the midst of this whole system that's set up and goal oriented and, and what I mean by that is many of us say, oh yeah, it's the path. I'm on the path. It's enjoyment. But you, I feel you're arguing something there's deeper that we may not be recognizing in terms of how we observe this way of being?
0: Yes, I think we often say embrace the journey, embrace the process. But then right after that, we add, oh, and before you know it, you'll reach your goal. You know, you'll (laughs) get that job, you'll get the promotion, you'll uh, complete the project that you've been working on. So we have a sense that the journey matters, but then we turn right back to this goal-oriented framework and we subordinate the journey to the destination, And I'm trying to flip that and suggest that the destination is for the sake of the journey and not the other way around. And I think about this a lot in my own life. And maybe this example, this personal example will help illuminate a little bit what I mean. I have this very niche obsession with pull-ups, the exercise pull-ups. And I've actually been training for many years to set Guinness World Records for most pull-ups in a minute. From one perspective, it's a very goal-oriented activity: certain number of reps, a record to break. Those goals are are motivating; they're inspiring. But at the same time, when I step back to ask myself, "Well, well why do you do this, and why do you train every day for this record?" and it isn't just about the record itself, and it's not even just about whatever little recognition one gets for being able to lift your chin over the bar so many times in one minute, which is a very uh, niche thing. It's a cool thing, but it's not like, you know, you're the Olympic champion at the 100 meters. So, you know, why do you keep doing it? Well, I actually love the process, not just as a means to the end, but I love being in the midst of a hard set, feeling alive, you know, feeling my fingers pressing into the bar, gravity pulling me down, trying to get back up, engaged with the forces of nature in, in that distinctive way, and being with friends, training partners, people who I would not otherwise have been able to meet had I not embarked upon that activity, and learning about myself in the process, feeling myself growing in in capability, and even finding a voice of self-expression that, that I wouldn't be able to find as much in other settings. That's what I, I mean by by the journey that that actually being in the middle of it is what's most important and that one is in a sense most happy when in the midst of a struggle and the struggle involves overcoming obstacles and pain you know in ways great and small depending on what kind of uh, activity we're talking about but in the in the case of doing pull-ups for a Guinness world record it physically it's quite grueling you know your muscles are burning you're experiencing pain but it's actually a very happy moment in the midst of it, not just afterward. I mean, while you're doing it, there's a sense of being alive that I think is essential to thinking through what happiness really means.
1: Yeah, thanks for that example. And I mean, when someone reads your thesis of your book and then hears your the world record holder, I know at first I like, wait a second, there must be a lot of striving that goes into that. But as, as you've articulated, it's that relationship. And I even like in the book, you talked about your relationship between gravity when it's pulling you down. Was it always the case? And what I mean by that is when you entered the the world of, I'm not even sure how one gets to having that as, as a way of being, but when you entered it, was this your relationship with goals? Or perhaps did it evolve and change as you pursued this activity of doing chin-ups?
0: It definitely evolved. I would say that I always loved it. It wasn't an activity that I felt forced into I chose it. You know, it was it was an activity that I that I decided to pursue on my own. And you could say, well, in some sense, I was attracted by the the allure of a goal of, of a goal, namely mm-hmm. to set a Guinness world record and you know get your name in the book, which is it's still a pretty cool thing. But it was more that I already loved doing it. I mean, I wouldn't have even set my sights on that goal if I didn't enjoy working out and training. And I've loved sports my whole life, and I've. grew up playing a lot of baseball and tennis, and then got into working out and weightlifting throughout college and did some competitive powerlifting. And sports have always been a big part of my life just because I love them. And this was kind of an extension of that. As I got older, I realized I I was pretty good at pull-ups and liked them, and so the the passion was always there in a kind of non-goal-oriented sense that I just liked to do it, but it evolved. To answer your question, it definitely evolved. And I think it evolved most in confronting failures. And also when I had successes, realizing that when I set a record, although it was this moment of accomplishment, I felt great about myself that day, celebrated a bit that evening. The next day I was like, well, I'm I'm the same person. You know, I just set a record, but what now? What's next? And I think all goals have this strange character of absorbing us before we achieve them. And we put pressure on ourselves to get to those goals. And, you know, we even beat ourselves up over, you know, I'm not close enough, I'm not doing well enough. And then when you actually succeed, you're like, well, wait a minute, it's nice, but I'm actually the same person and I'm asking the same questions. What do I do now? And so the goal itself can't be what gives you ultimate fulfillment. Somehow there has to be some more fundamental connection to the activity that that continues to inspire you, but that also gives you a deeper sense of satisfaction. And that's where I think the journey comes into play. And you re- realize it too when you lose, you know, when you come up short and you, and you say to yourself, wow, well, what can I take away from this experience? And then you look back and you recognize, well, what a ride this has been. Even though I lost, I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm, I would have done the same same thing because guess what? I'm richer for it in, in the most fundamental sense. I have new friends, deeper friendships, deeper sense of self. So it was a process and it, it continues to evolve, you know, my relationship to the tension, I guess, between goal-oriented striving and activity for its own sake, and how I try to always live according to the latter activity for its own sake, but but it's very hard because the goal oriented perspective always is looming, you know, it kind of crowds in on you.
1: I, I really like how you, you explained that story. And at the end, use that the term richer, like a richer life through this process. And you said deeper understanding of myself. And I think that is, I agree so much with you that that's the richness we can get from exploring these parts of ourselves. And that really resonated with me because in 2018, my daughter was born in December, and I remember thinking it was my second kid, and I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna like become a, a, I'm gonna become a lazy dad." I always liked, uh, not lazy, but I don't know. I had this fear that two kids, no more athletics, and I've always liked athletics. I'm from Canada, so of course, hockey. But I decided to sign up for an Ironman, and it was actually in the hospital, and signed up for an Ironman, and. I totally did it because I want the recognition that came with like, that's through some rec- or self-reflection, I realized that came with like, hey, you did an Ironman, Sean. But the interesting part has been, that was 2018. I still haven't done a full Ironman, but I've been training for one every single year since then. And I've learned so much more about myself. I've cultivated so many relationships running every single morning. I've, I've been able to exercise one of the sports five or six days a week for the last four, four and a half years. And the process, it was interesting how it changed to me that, that you know, the COVID happened. The first Ironman I went to, the swim got canceled the night before. So we didn't actually do the full Ironman. And I didn't even care anymore because it was this process that like, I got such deep relationships during COVID when everything was in isolation. We'd still run in the mornings together when we we're allowed to. And this relationship with nature, I really started getting just being outside so much that I, I feel a deeper, richer person as a result of this, I guess, once goal oriented task. But I want to flip to how philosophy comes in here, because you talk a lot about Socrates and knowing thyself. And I really feel that it was through knowing myself that I was able to all of a sudden realize that I'm doing this this activity for the sake of the activity, for being outside, feeling the sun on my skin. So at what point did you start to integrate this idea of embracing the journey with philosophy? And and where
0: did this idea, revelation or where did this wisdom come from? Well, intellectually I've been very influenced by Socrates and Plato who tells us about the life of Socrates. We know about Socrates through the writings of Plato, who wrote philosophical dialogues featuring Socrates as the main character and Socrates was Plato's teacher. So Plato presents Socrates as this philosophical hero and shows how Socrates conducts himself throughout his life, all the conversations he has with people on the streets and in their homes in ancient Athens. And of course, the moment that Socrates is perhaps most well-known for, which is his trial and execution. The people of Athens sentenced him to death for allegedly corrupting the youth and for leading them to believe in new gods, not recognized by the state. But, but really why they accused him was that he challenged conventional wisdom. It represents a kind of emblematic tension between oneself, what one believes in, what one stands up for. In the case of Socrates, it was philosophy and questioning things, and then the powers that be. So I, I've taken a lot from Plato's portrayal of the life of Socrates, one thing that i've taken from that is simply the idea that philosophy is about how to live that today we think of philosophy differently as a kind of abstract academic discipline that's arcane difficult to understand that you know maybe you've taken a class or two and it you're you're debating stuff like how do we know if if this chair is really in front of me you know kind of more abstract questions that are more characteristic of early modern and modern philosophy you know, for reasons that we don't have to get into, but I'm happy to discuss. But, but anyway, Socrates thought of philosophy very differently. Philosophy was about how to live. What is the good life? What is the good life for me? Know thyself. These were his mottos or really the principles by which he lived. Furthermore, Socrates presents us with activity for the sake of itself, the way he lived his life, pursuing philosophy, not so much to reach a final answer, but to engage in perpetual self-examination, self-discovery that always left a question as much as it did an answer. And I think that sense of the the ongoing journey of philosophy is, is what I take from him. And finally, a third thing is how he represents what I would call the virtue of self-possession—that's very difficult and in short supply these days. I think this—the image of somebody who's willing to stand up for himself against popular pressures, even to the point of of accepting the death penalty for what he believed in—those are the things that I've I've really taken from ancient philosophy.
1: So a couple different directions I want to go. I want to go into the, the virtues that you outlined in the book with self-possession being a big chunk of the book. But, but before that, you talk about stoicism in your book. Stoicism has become quite popular. We've seen many, many books being published. What is it that may not sit with your view in terms of applying philosophy, like stoicism towards this achieving this good life? Why is it that stoicism does not fit with your
0: framework that you envision? I think that ultimately Stoicism is too passive and it's too self effacing at its core to give us an answer to what happiness should really look like. And one way of seeing this is that a central tenet of Stoicism is to separate what we can control on the one hand and what we can't control on the other. And there's this very strong sense between internal and external that's essential to Stoicism. So, internal would be my own thoughts. And emotions, my interpretation of things. And external would be the events that happen in the world around me. So the reactions of other people, the forces of nature. And Stoicism says, well, when disaster strikes in the form of a natural disaster or a terrible response from some person that, that I have to relate to somehow, you know, they disrespect me or Give me a really hard time. Well, those are external things. And really, the answer to finding happiness is to find tranquility by really maintaining a sharp distinction between what you can and can't control. Well, I can control my emotions, at least to a certain extent. I can detach from those external influences. I don't really have to engage. I can be at peace with myself through a kind of mental process of just trying to talk myself into letting things be and not thinking about them. And what I believe that misses ultimately is the opportunity to grow and to develop one's character through a direct but constructive confrontation with precisely those so-called external things and to try to reach some compromise, to really make a continuous effort to make what seems external your own and to, to mediate the inner and the outer such that you actually come to recognize that what is apparently external is never entirely external and what is internal is never entirely internal and what i am trying to to get at in in this virtue that i call engagement with nature is just this mediation where you come to see nature not as just an external force that acts against you like gravity for example we tend to think of gravity as just something out there you know that defines the physical world and we can't change it. We have to adapt to gravity, but we can't change what the force of gravity is. That's just simply an external fact. Deal with it. You know, Get your own mind right and accept it. Accept what you can't control. That's, that's the stoic way of thinking. What that misses is the way in which we experience and perceive gravity. Even the sense of what gravity itself is depends on an interpretation already that we supply. And the way gravity works its force on us is always relative to a stance we take on our own being. So gravity, the sense in which it pulls us down, is felt in a very distinctive way if, for example, you're engaged in the activity of doing pull-ups and you're fighting with those last reps against gravity, but then you realize, no, gravity isn't just something external to me. It's something that I appropriate. And channel through this activity because gravity can't exert its force unless I fight against it to pull up. So that there's this kind of communion between self and world that we realize in so many ways. I mean, I I'm giving the example of pull-ups because it's personal, but think of think of sailing. How the the force of the wind is is felt and manifest in a very distinctive way, and you could say manifest is even more forceful than it otherwise would be when caught in the sail of the sailboat and directed by the person who is controlling the sail to make the ship, the boat, speed down the water. And you realize what the power of the wind is through your own agency. And I think agency is what stoicism ultimately misses or it, it mischaracterizes the sense in which we have agency in the world.
1: Yeah, that that idea of having that agency, I think is so important. And as you talk about Socrates' belief on reflection and understanding ourselves with this blend of nature, what you just described with your your, uh, gravity. I was recently in Mexico with our family and I, I brought your book to just prepare for today. And we were trying to surf, me and my son. I'm not a surfer. And I was trying to will my way To get myself on that board, I was like, "I'm impressing my six year old son. I will get on this." And like, tumbled, 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 and then I realized that like this wave is so strong. Like I'm not going to force. I'm not. I'm a. I'm not a strong guy to force myself onto this wave. And it was interesting as the more I relaxed, I started to to like surrender to the vastness and the the force behind this wave, and I got up and. I continued to get up the more I relaxed and just kind of to your idea, I almost like had a dance and respected the wave in and itself for the force. And it reminded me of Leonard Cohen. He's got this line. It says, if you don't become the ocean, you will be seasick every day. I was just like, okay, I'm going to surrender to this ocean. I was thinking later on that, like, yeah, this peaceful practice of surrender to whatever. In this case, it was the wave, the force or whatever often helps, at least I've experienced, to kind of illuminate what I can learn from this experience. And yeah, it was interesting how I was reading your book and trying to surf at the same time. So thank you for allowing me to show off in front of my six-year-old of how I can stand up on a surfboard.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad my philosophy (laughs) had a very practical implication.
1: So we've been talking about this activity for its own sake and defining what happiness is learning to know thyself having this awareness to understand our external external world nature at that how we what we can learn from it when we apply what we've been learning and I want to go into the three virtues that you outline but when we apply this to our relationship with money and happiness we don't have to look far to find books on how to become happier around your money and often they're you know step by step do these things and you will be happy. But what we know is that research has shown that money makes life easier. There's no, it, it makes life easier. We can get clothes, we can have, we can do more things with money. But this idea that you talked about becoming richer, I think is profound because while money can make our lives easier, I think there's a deeper issue at at hand that is happening to us collectively as we create this highly motivated goal oriented narrative that really is embraced by this hustle culture that portrays this image that if you hustle, if you rise and grind, you're going to make more money and become happier and live a good life. In this context, what do you think that we
0: could be getting wrong? Well, I think you introduced the problem very profoundly. I think that money is potential. You know, if you put your money to good use, it can Help you live a better life. There's no doubt about that. We also know that money can be a very dangerous thing. If you spend money on the wrong things to your own detriment, feed bad habits through your spending, addiction, and so on, money can be a very dangerous and debilitating thing. But there's a bigger problem that I think you highlighted where people think, well, yes, I know that, but I still feel this compulsion to make money to keep making money, and to put in all of this effort so that someday down the road, maybe I'll reach this point of security, but it's never quite enough. And I think the more one gets into the habit of a hustle culture, as you put it, and that's required more often than not to make money, you become habituated so much to the hustle and lose a sense of self-possession. You lose touch with your friends you may have a lot of allies that you may be meeting with colleagues and people who are good connections. And it may be a friendly kind of interaction, but they're not true friends, sense of people who really have your back and who you share a history with and who you spend time with when it isn't talking shop or trying to make a deal or something. And you lose touch with the outdoors, you know, being in front of a computer screen all day in the office or, you know, just rushing around from meeting to meeting and you don't even take a moment to appreciate the sunrise or the sunset. And that's a real problem. And I think we're all caught up in it to some extent. And I mean, myself included that, that we, it's like we're on this hamster wheel where we're involved in a rat race or whatever metaphor you want to use. And, and the prestige, the the sense of accomplishment, really can crowd out these more fundamental virtues. So it's it's not an easy thing to re- reconcile money with happiness. Even though we all know, as you said, money buys us comforts, gives us leisure time in theory, and we can. What's leisure time but time to cultivate the most fundamental things?
1: Yeah, I think that's so important. And it's not not saying at all, like I'm saying this to I guess the listeners is that my perspective around money and happiness evolves. It's not saying that money there's no link between happiness and a good life. There there, there is evidence. There is. It's just this idea, and I'm gonna quote you because I really like this quote and it really helped me orient what I was trying to or what's going through my mind. But you, you said what we lose in goal-oriented striving is an appreciation. For life in its unfolding, we easily slide into defining our self-worth by how close we are to reaching our goals. And that appreciation for life in its unfolding is what really spoke to me, is that yes, this idea of having more money makes life easier and we can do more things that are enjoyable. But if we miss the things that are unfolding in front of us, I think that's that's missing out on this deeper, enriched life that you spoke about. I agree. It's very, very interesting and... uh I guess that brings me to this idea of with your your framework. So how can we start? And I think I'd like to go into the three areas. We've kind of touched on them indirectly already or directly, but can you touch on them in each order? But how do we balance this idea of life as a journey without a fixed destination with the appreciation that the pursuit towards a goal can have intrinsic significance in itself? So how do you use these three virtues as, uh, as a framework?
0: Well, the three virtues, of which again are self-possession, friendship, and engagement with nature are all ways of trying to capture what I mean by activity for the sake of itself. So you could see them as different angles on the same key to happiness. And I see them as very deeply connected. And this can be seen most clearly, I think, in the case of self-possession and friendship. We often think of those as different virtues, that people who are self-possessed may not have that many friends, or be good friends, and people who are good friends may not be self-possessed. But I think the problem with that way of thinking is that we misconceive self-possession. We we understand the self as an isolated individual too much. And so self-possession is like me against the rest of the world. You know, I am my own individual and I stand up for my beliefs and myself. That doesn't necessarily imply being a good friend. But I look at it from a different perspective. Self-possession has to do with engaging in activities that are fulfilling for their own sake. Think back to Socrates, the way he practiced philosophy, which is what gave him the strength to stand up to the city of Athens. This pursuit of the truth, but also a never-ending pursuit that really made him who he was and allowed him to stand up for himself. But that activity was not isolated from friends. Because what that activity was, was precisely conversation in the company of others, trying to figure out the meaning of justice, happiness, the good life, love, beauty, in the company of other people who he listened to and who were part of this shared project. So that his self-possession involved other people. He had very, very close students, but he had others too who were not necessarily so close to him yet, who even in their own kind of confused ways actually contributed to Socrates' way of thinking. He could take something even from his opponents and turn it into an insight that was essential to his own self-knowledge. So it wasn't this isolated activity that defined his self possession. It was a kind of friendly relationship. And I think if you look at it in the other direction, too, that when we stand up for ourselves, we often do so imagining, you know, how somebody who we respect would act in that situation. We have mentors and role models. And imagine, you know, imagine my friend is with me right now in this situation. They're not there, but imagine. How I would want to comport myself in front of that person. And that gives one a lot of strength to resist sometimes popular opinion. You know, the people I respect most would want me to stand up for myself, and I have a duty not just to myself, but to them. So, this is how I see self possession and friendship as very deeply connected. And then engagement with nature, this kind of appreciation of nature, but also agency with respect to nature grappling with nature, appropriating nature, but listening to it at the same time. I don't think you can be fully self-possessed if you don't have that capacity because what will happen in the face of some natural disaster, you're going to be crushed by it or you know, you're know, you not going to be able to cope with it if you don't have that capacity and that, that implicates your self-possession. So self-possession, friendship, engagement with nature are all connected. It's not like one piece here, another there, and yet a third.
1: Again, I like how they're all intertwined, but you do provide distinction and the genuine friendship. I thought it was so interesting how you, you say, if we're not careful in this goal oriented world where the end is the, the goal, we can end up with a lot of allies and little real friends. Can you just elaborate on that statement?
0: Well, an ally is somebody who helps you achieve something. It's a goal-oriented relationship and it can be a very pleasant relationship and it's also true that some allies can also be friends but i think it's important not to confuse an alliance for a friendship and we often do we we convince ourselves oh yeah i'm getting out and about i'm being sociable i'm surrounded by people all the time you know it, but then deep down we do have a sense i think that we're missing something if the nature of our interaction is simply transactional mm-hmm. There is something more to friendship, sharing a history together, having grown up together, a history of having each other's backs in tough situations, but also telling stories and making the best out of tough situations together over the course of a life that has nothing to do with achieving a specific goal. And the reason you you hang with that person, spend time with them, tell stories with them Help them think through tough decisions in life is is not because you're going to get anything out of it, but rather it's intrinsically part of who you are and and of uh, deep value while you're in the midst of it,
1: yeah I, I I really find that interesting, and you look at a lot of research in around happiness, and one of again, these studies vary tremendously, but consistently we see the value of friendship, the value of community being involved with other individuals and I know if I reflect on my life, I have deep, meaningful relationships with many individuals, especially ones that I experienced to what you've been talking about, some hardship or difficulties. And we, you know, did it out of a true friendship and not just, I want to get something from you, so I'm going to help you out. And there's so much significance and meaning that we find within those moments. So I, I really liked how you put that part into the your framework
0: personally and again uh, sports is a realm where i think this kind of friendship can be on display in small but very powerful ways you know after a, a competition when fellow when competitors shake hands or even while they're competing that there is a kind of friendship despite competition or friendship through competition where Although you're trying to to win the game, let us say a, a tennis match. You know, we recently uh had the Australian Open. I don't know how many people watched it, but I've always been a big tennis fan. And so I'm thinking about tennis lately. And Roger Federer recently retired, who was my tennis hero growing up after Pete Sampras retired. I kind of grew up with both of them. So when I was young, it was Pete Sampras and Roger Federer. Anyway, watching a match between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal and seeing their exchanges on court when they're in the midst of a a long point each with their characteristic style of play, trying to win the point, but at the same time, bringing out the sport of tennis at its best. And you need both of them to do that. And I remember it was after one match. I, I don't recall what match it was exactly, but Federer said, I think quite honestly, he wasn't just being gracious. He had won this time and he said um, he wished the match didn't have to end. You know, it was nice to win, but he wished he could just play on forever like this. And that's the sentiment of a kind of, well, joy in the activity for its own sake, but also a kind of recognition of friendship through opposition, through competition, where you're part of a shared project. In this case, making tennis as beautiful and as true to what tennis is as you possibly can do. Um, not wanting it to end. I thought that was a very nice uh, sentiment and expression of friendship of a certain kind with his opponent.
1: Yeah. Wow. That never knew that. What a story. You're so right, especially in such an individual one-on-one sport to want it to continue on. It's really interesting. You know, so in your book, you walk through these these three areas that you talk about that we, we've described. And then you, you move into a chapter called Contending with Time. Why did you put this chapter there? What is the significance of this chapter after those three virtues?
0: Well, I think time embraces these three virtues. And it's such a difficult topic to wrap one's mind around the meaning of time. What is time? In what sense does time pass? And time implicates some of the most fundamental questions we face. What is death? You know, are we moving inevitably toward death? How do we reckon with the fact that in some sense, things come to an end? Or do they exactly come to an end? How do we characterize our lives and understand it in relation to time and the flow of time? I think the source of our deepest discontent connected with being wrapped up in a very goal-oriented life is a misunderstanding or a Covering over of what time really is and what time means. The first point I wanted to make about time is that time isn't simply a force to which we're subject. We sometimes think of time as like this river that flows along and pulls us along with it, and and that we can't help. But the way time becomes manifest is deeply connected, I try to show, to the stance we take toward our own being. So when we're wrapped up in a very goal-oriented way of life, time appears in a very sequential way, one moment after the next. The future is that you know that goal that I'm trying to accomplish, but it's not here yet. I can envision it, but I haven't made it real. The past are my past successes and failures, and the successes maybe motivate me for the goal that I see ahead in the future. And the past may weigh on me, drag me down, make me anxious about, you know, am I going to achieve this next goal? And the present is kind of a way station to the future. It's like, I want to leap out of the present and get to that future world that I envision. That's the good, that's the better world. You know, you're not in the present as a kind of moment in itself. So, this conception of time is, is very linear and sequential. I believe, is relative to a goal-oriented perspective. We can arrive at a much different, and I would say more profound sense of time when we embrace activity for the sake of itself and find ourselves thoroughly uh, absorbed in it. And when we live up to these three virtues, we actually experience time in a radically different way.
1: You know, experience time, I like that statement. You know, in this world, we're always talking about, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough time, but we all have the time. It's whether we're experiencing that time. So a lot of what we're talking about, and perhaps a way to experience the time, our time, lies in our ability to use a word you said, to become our own being. How would philosophy help us, whether it's Socrates or other teachings? How do we aspire to move towards knowing thyself better or this constant life of self-reflection because you know it's hard it requires us to look at deep parts of ourselves that maybe provide us with discomfort and maybe that's the reason why we subscribe to this goal-orientated world is because it distracts us distracts us from knowing thyselves because that can be challenging what has philosophy taught you on how we can
0: simply put know thyself better when it gets hard to do so What philosophy can do is to help us see the problem in the first place and to draw the right distinctions. I mean, the distinction, for example, between self-possession and self-confidence, we often confuse the two. Deep down on a kind of um, inarticulate level, we we may know what real self-possession is, but then... We're also somewhat confused because we think self-possession simply means, you know, like Don Draper from Mad Men making a DAP, you know, a a smooth sales pitch in front of a room of clients. And that that's self-confidence and it's impressive in its its own way, but it's limited. And as, you know, those who have watched the show will know that he's not really a self-possessed guy if you look at the whole of his life. When he's outside of his Madison Avenue office, his life spirals into this free fall of alcohol and women and failed attempts at personal renewal. And the very image of the opening credits of this this man in free fall represents his predicament, which is really the opposite of self-possession in the deepest sense. But he has a lot of self-confidence. And so being able to... Articulate these distinctions and make clear to ourselves what we really should be aspiring for is what philosophy can help us do. Because often the reason we get confused is that some way of acting or way of striving is very appealing because because others around us applaud it or we get recognition for it. People look at that guy and say, Oh, wow, he's so smooth. He's so dapper, you know, that's how you want to be and you have to think and and step back and say well wait a minute is can looks be deceiving and i think that's where philosophy can help us have a more critical perspective on things in terms of like the nuts and bolts of of everyday practice i think philosophy is is less helpful unless it's an unusual kind of philosophy that also incorporates kind of practical tips which philosophy is never all that well equipped to do and to some extent the the kind of everyday exercises one might employ or like checks you might put on yourself to remind yourself, okay, mm-hmm. more self-possessed, be a better friend. Like that will vary from person to person, mm-hmm. you know, cause you'll have to think of things that will motivate you, whether it's like posting a, a motivating uh, word of wisdom above your desk or whether it's uh, waking up that morning and thinking of, okay, let me just, take a minute to think of a a good friend or mentor and how they would approach the day that I'm about Mm. to approach. You know, that's very personal. And I think that stuff is very helpful. But what where philosophy comes in is really clarifying the most fundamental distinctions that we often get confused by kind of pulling us back to what really matters.
1: Yeah, I I think that's probably where the beauty lies is that it provides us this, this lens to contemplate, but Perhaps it's within the contemplation is where we do the work to know thyselves. And I think there's definitely a a beauty in that there is no process. Our step-by-step guide to philosophy, that's our job, that's the work, that's our life
0: work that requires us to, I guess, create our own way of being. I would say too that what philosophy can do is it makes us more attentive. So speaking personally, the virtue engagement with nature. In some sense, I've always been very fascinated by nature, struck by the beauty of of nature and and interested to explore nature, whether it's, it's like amateur botany when I was a, a young kid or whether today I, I really love weather. So observing the weather and knowing the different cloud formations, being able to predict what might happen based on just looking at the sky in the summer or something like that. I've had this interest but I think having studied philosophy I have a new a deeper appreciation for nature and if if I hadn't read books that present some image of nature as somehow both a force that we encounter you know that we can't control but at the same time a force that we can interpret and appropriate in certain ways provided that we listen to it I think a philosophical perspective like that, that you find, for example, in Nietzsche, in Heidegger, in actually many philosophers. But if if I hadn't encountered those books and those ideas, I wouldn't have been as attentive to nature and wouldn't have taken as much time maybe to, to interpret the things that I found interesting in the world around me and to try to Articulate them even by jotting down in a journal to myself, okay, well, what is it about this cloud formation or this this tree stump with um sprouts shooting out of it that caught my attention? You know, the philosophy is there to orient you, sort of. And then you do the work of interpreting it for yourself.
1: That's great. I I really enjoyed listening to that. And as you're talking, I and reflecting on my own journey and relationship with nature has dramatically changed the more I've been in nature. And it's such a wonderful place. And I, I know before I really started reflecting on my own story, what makes me happy? What, what How can I know thyself more for myself? I didn't spend much time in nature because I was busy trying to be busy following that, that cycle of get a goal, accomplishment. And then I think in your book, you call it the what now. <laughs> that was me not being in nature, and thank goodness, I tried to sign up for an Ironman to make myself feel better by posting those pictures on Instagram. Because now I really have embraced nature, and it's it's a big part of my life. As we come to an end here in the money world, in the finance world, we talk about financial freedom. Freedom fifty five is a thing here in Canada. I don't know about the states, but money and freedom has often gone together. In your last chapter, you talk about what does it mean to be free. And on this podcast, I've often talked about that we can have the biggest bank account. But if we haven't freed ourselves mentally from the rumination that comes along with more and more and more that goal oriented culture, perhaps we don't have the ultimate freedom, so to speak. So as you crafted this last chapter, what it means to be free, what does it mean to be free from your perspective in this book?
0: The easiest response at first is, of course, to say what freedom isn't. And I think what freedom isn't is living a life where you don't exercise your own judgment. And you don't because you outsource that judgment to other people or to popular opinion. And you really aren't taking responsibility for your own life and exercising agency. It may be an easier life, but deep down it's It's not fulfilling. So then, on the other side, you have to then ask, well, what's the positive conception of freedom? If not that, what is it? Well, it's being an engaged interpreter. It's being attentive to those things that catch your eye, to those things that inspire you, that matter most to you, that you find beautiful or alluring, and exercising your interpretive capacity to assess those things and integrate them into your life. And not getting trapped by any preconceived vision you might have of how your life should turn out or how the world should be. I think that's a big trap that we have some image of, okay, once I do this, this, and that, you know, check the items off the bucket list, I'll be happy. And instead maintaining an openness to the unknown and to the unexpected throughout your whole life, an openness to the mystery of the world to new horizons that you can't possibly foresee. And you can have faith in those new horizons by looking back and reflecting on the chance encounters that have made your life meaningful today that you couldn't possibly have foreseen at that time. And then you realize, wow, there's such a contingency to life, but at the same time, I'm responsible for it because if I hadn't followed up on that first date or chance encounter or whatever it is and kind of played it out and see where it went. Things wouldn't have been where they are today. So you are responsible. But there is also a kind of serendipity and mystery to life that I think we lose when we try to always plan stuff out and mm. and we trap ourselves. And that's that's not freedom. So I think freedom is openness to the unknown and confidence to be able to interpret and incorporate.
1: Thank you. I I really enjoyed that. And you made me think, and I want to respect your time here, but I did pull out another quote from yours that your comment made me think of. And I want to say it for the readers or the listeners, but rather than thinking of one's life as a plan to be executed, we should conceive a good life as coming to clarity and the articulation with encounters of the unbidden. That one really spoke to me and in your response made me think of it. So Thank you for that. On the podcast, we I ask everyone a final question that has been consistent over the last three and a half years, but I'm adding a new one and perhaps you may have answered it. But if I was to ask you what does it mean to live a good life, how would you answer that?
0: I would say a life that is dominated, that's motivated by activity or activities that you engage in for their own sake, a life in which you exercise your own judgment, stand up for yourself, for what you believe in, self-possession, lived in the company of friends, not only allies, but real friends, and that is attentive to nature as an interpreter, as a respectful interpreter, but also as someone who exercises agency in the world and exists as a kind of partner with nature, such that you realize that the world around you isn't simply external and you aren't just some isolated sphere or mind who's separate from the world around you.
1: Really enjoyed that. My last question is let's assume you're at end of life whatever age it is it is and you're sitting on a front porch looking at something that brings you internal peace. Whatever that is mountain, ocean, meadow it doesn't matter. Whatever brings you this sense of internal peace. You pull out your notebook and decide to write a letter to whomever you want the next generations of what it means to have a healthy and happy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter?
0: Use money to buy leisure time and use your leisure time to contemplate something as beautiful as what I'm looking at in your own way, in your own life. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad we recorded that answer as well. Adam, for
1: listeners who want to know more about you, your work, your book, where would you point
0: them towards? Well, check out my book, Happiness in Action A Philosopher's Guide to the Good Life. You can purchase it on Amazon or at your local bookstore, hopefully. You can check out my Instagram at ups if you're interested in <laughs> my athletic exploits. That's the platform that's just dedicated to uh, to pull-ups and training. So uh, you can find me there.
1: Okay. Definitely. Your book was, I I really enjoyed it. I feel feel like for someone who is nowhere near a philosophy professor like yourself, it was very digestible and understandable. You did a really, really good job and it really resonated with me. And do you think you'll get to 75, 76 pull-ups? Is 74 the record?
0: 74 is the record and I'm going to, I'm going to try my best. I'm, I'm gearing up for it. I about almost a year ago, exactly. I tried for 74 and got 72. So <laughs> January 30th of last year, I, I remember that very well. I came up just short, but it gives me uh, gives me motivation for the next one. All right, Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it,
1: Sean. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. If you're still listening, it might mean you enjoyed the conversation. And if so, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or send this episode or another episode to a friend, as it really helps bring awareness to the podcast so we can continue to share this message. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll talk with you next week.
0: I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured, and now I spend my time. Now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sail